if you were asked to speak on the testimony of Jesus, to which portion of Scripture would you turn? What would be your fundamental text in an exposition on the concept of the testimony of Jesus? This weekend, we've heard a number of different testimonies, some short, some longer, as to Christ's effect on patients, physicians, practices, and in some cases, institutions. These are our testimonies of him, the difference he has made in our lives and the lives of our patients. But what of his testimony directly? Not our experiential stories of him, but his story, his testimony, if he would be here to tell it. The question, where would we turn in Scripture, can also be met with another question. Where wouldn't we turn in Scripture? Was it not Christ who was the Word of God in creation? Was it not Christ who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden? Was it not from Christ's hands that came the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Was it not Christ who communed with Abram? Was it not he who spoke from atop Sinai? Was it not he who was the rock and the pillar? Was it not he that was the messenger of the covenant? Was it not he who was the wisdom of God and the word of the Lord to the prophets? It is worth noting that Christ did not have to wait till the New Testament to find his testimony. In the words of Luke, his final chapter, we hear these words, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In John, he says, you search the scriptures, because in them you think you have life, but these are they that testify of me. There can be no doubt, then, that the Old Testament, the First Testament, is his book, his story. Even though there's parts we don't understand very well, and all the flashlights of the Old Testament strain their shining light towards him. The Gospels clearly portray his testimony as well. In the parables, in the direct instructions he gave to his disciples in Matthew, in the extended discourses we have in John, in healings and journeys, and ultimately in the acts of salvation that gave us our salvation, we see and hear his testimony. The letters and the epistles are no less his testimony either, but surely the height of his testimony is reached in Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. If the revelation from Jesus, about Jesus, is not a revelation of Jesus Christ, it is difficult to imagine what would be. Interestingly enough, this book makes explicit mention of the term, the testimony of Jesus. Certainly fertile ground for an Adventist exposition of this concept. Thus, this testimony of Jesus theme 
is broader and deeper than we have perhaps imagined. His book, his message, his varied and sundry ways, through it all, we hear his voice and his testimony to us. Thus, the task for me of choosing one text to speak on was neither obvious nor easy. So it's a bit curious, then, that I should have chosen a text that is somewhat disputed in Scripture. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8, which will be the focus of our study this morning. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman who was taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, This woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that shut should be stoned. What sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, And the woman was standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. In what way or ways does this text speak to the theme of the testimony of Jesus? In what way does it guide practitioners of the healing arts as to how his healing of then can be brought to the here and now of our lives? As I have studied and wrestled with this story and its meaning for me and perhaps by extension its meaning for all of us, it seems to me that there are two foundational pillars on which this story rests. Truth. Truth is immensely important to John's portrayal of Jesus. John's opening chapter reads, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from that fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
In the third chapter, we see Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And three times he says to him, he starts his words during this nighttime visit, Behold, I tell you the truth. In John chapter 8, we hear Jesus' voice saying, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Climaxing in his declaration in chapter 14 with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A trinity of I am statements whose central pillar is truth. Our passage then is no exception to this truth telling. He that is without sin, let him cast. Jesus acknowledged the truth of their claim. He recognized the realm of the law. He recognized sin and its punishment. He here does nothing to dispute, disparage, or lessen the authority of the law. It stands, and according to her standard, she's worthy of death, for the wages of sin is death. The truth is, she had sinned. The truth is, the law had spoken. And the truth was that death was the penalty of the law. His final words to her indicate this was not an isolated act in her life. She now stands before the judgment bar and truth is unable to defend her. Speaking the truth has become a bit difficult for us moderns. We want to massage the truth. We'd like to nuance the truth. We'd like to somehow reconfigure the truth. Multiple lines of evidence lead to this conclusion. Whether you look at the surveys of adults self-reporting in terms of their honesty, statistics of cheating on examinations in high school or college, or our politicians at a national level, speaking the truth, dealing with the truth, has become a bit difficult for us. Coming closer to home, how do we do as practitioners in terms of telling the truth to our patients? When before me I have a patient with symptomatic cholelithiasis, do I speak the truth to them about diet? Well, why should I? Because speaking in generalizations, will this obese, McDonald-loving patient of mine, whose only desire is to avoid future pain, really want to listen to anything I have to say about lifestyle? What additional reimbursement will I get for my added time? What if they opt for diet therapy? Does this make any sense for me as a surgeon? What is the referring doctor going to say? What are my partner surgeons going to say? How will this affect my bottom line contribution to the group at the end of the month? There are many rational reasons we can give as to why we should practice medicine as we have learned it. A reasonable set of questions, an intelligent differential in diagnosis, a scientific objective means of verification, and then the executed standard of care or norm in the community. But truth confronts me with just one question.
are the practices that destroy health and destroy life, the breaking of the sixth commandment? Or does this commandment just deal with murder by a weapon? Is there a wider sphere to these words? If someone is rushed to the emergency room with a poisoning, do we not take an e-wall tube, place it in their stomach, evacuate its contents, give charcoal and sorbitol, an antidote if necessary, and then the appropriate referral for help? Well, someone will object. You can't stop someone from eating what they want. It's their free choice. Well, if that's true, why do we stop them from killing themselves? Isn't that their free choice as well? If someone takes a small amount of poison a little bit at a time, is it essentially different from someone who takes poison all at once? Why are markedly different responses? Every Adventist physician is a lifestyle physician because you lay some relation to, some claim to, an institution whose statute is the Good Samaritan. And your job description reads, I have been trained so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. While we may not often be asked questions about adultery and the law of Moses, surely as Christian physicians we can speak to its neighboring commandment. The words of Jesus to Nicodemus should constantly be ringing in our ears. Behold, I tell you the truth. So how then do we go about telling the truth? In love the second pillar that supports the weight of this story. Picture the scene with me for a moment as time and eternity meet. For surely they will if this woman is stoned this morning. It's perfectly quiet there. The silence punctuated only by the occasional soft sob. The sound of a tear falling for a fraction of a second before this drop hits the dust, causing a small puff and a moistened few millimeters of dirt. If only this woman could have seen through her swollen eyes, perhaps she would have noticed that those teardrops looked like a circle, a circle surrounded by a serrated edge, faintly resembling a crown, perhaps a crown of thorns, a a crown that would make it possible for all tears one day forever to be wiped away. But at this point, she has no knowledge of that. Her perspective, like her life, seems nothing more than the dust on the temple floor. Does she really think for one moment that these holy ones who have brought her will not hesitate to throw the first stone. She must have braced herself. But do they throw? Despite their anger, they can't quite seem to find the power to lift and throw with righteous indignation power. They want justice. They want the law upheld. But strangely, their mind is struggling. 
it's struggling between this idea of law and justice and who should be the first to throw. Funny thing is, normally they all want to be first. First at the table of honors. First in the list of contributions to the temple. First in the synagogue. But today, now, strangely, no one wants to be first. The tense atmosphere. This explosive moment is finally broken. Jesus moves. What will he do? He stooped, the text tells us. He stooped. This action speaks volumes of the Savior. In that stooping, we have not only a portion of this story, but the story of the gospel itself. He stoops, he bows, he goes down before religious Pharisees and before a sinner drenched in sin. This is his story. This is his testimony. For he knows that the only way the power of sin is ever broken in a sinner, the power of pride in a Pharisee, is by the stooping of God. This unspeakable action is painted for us in deeply rich hues in the book of Philippians. For though he has always been God by nature, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but opened his hands and let go, completely emptying himself, taking the nature of a slave, and being found in human form with people like us. He humbled himself. His humbling was for her rising. His stooping was for her elevation in righteousness. His first gesture is now followed by a second. He now writes for the second time in the history of the world. He doesn't need to write often because all things are a present for him eternally. Writing is for memory. And thus for him there's no need to write. But for the second time in the history of the world we see the finger of God writing. But he writes with a soft touch. For here he writes the sins of men. But not just for those present. Their catalog of sins is ours and our patience as well. But this writing is temporary. He hoped it would be temporary. He could make it temporary. For he knew that his sacrifice, his lifeblood poured out for others, would be a flood of cleansing that could make all these written words disappear. A flood of cleansing greater in size and scope than Noah's deluge. In these words, he ministers not just to the woman, but to the scribes and Pharisees as well. As they left, from the eldest to the youngest, they knew one thing. He knew them. Their rich robes and their long garments hid nothing from him. They were exposed to him as she was. And as they left, compelled by truth, they knew one other thing. He knew me intimately, and he didn't say a word. He held his peace. 
Not only did he not raise a stone against the woman, neither did he raise a stone against me, either figuratively or literally. His third and final interaction is his spoken word. Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? No man, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and leave your life of sin. Who alone but Jesus could speak these words? I have not come to condemn but to save. John would report of Jesus in another place, in another context. But for Jesus, it was always the same place and the same contents, the offering of salvation and not condemnation. His words to to her reveal the power of his forgiveness, his grace, and a new life. In these words, she was getting her very first taste of what it means to be in Christ, a true daughter of Abraham, girl of God's own making. Hers was not to fulfill the spirit of the written code that almost led to the loss of her life that day. Hers was rather to fulfill the law of the spirit as manifested and revealed in Jesus. She now lived to do his will and sin is in no wise his will. In that moment, the law of love had its first edition written on her heart. He who was the very embodiment of all its precepts and commandments would, by his very enthronement in her heart, make it possible for her to walk in its joy, its freedom, and its righteousness. His command to her, go and leave your life of sin, was not so much a command as a promise. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In love, the Father had sent, and in love, the Spirit and the Son had come. After such words as these, it is difficult to leave the lofty heights of a Jesus story and to return to that plain and ordinary plane on which we live our existence. But return we must. And yet we must take this story with us. So we find ourselves reflecting. How are we with our words and our actions to our patients? How do we go about telling them the truth? How do our lives hold up in light of his example and his testimony? Do we ever find ourselves saying to a patient, looking over top our glasses, mouthing ears of platitudes, pieces of advice? Mr. Smith, you really ought to stop smoking. Is that the gospel? Is that the liberating freedom we ourselves have found in Christ? Is that the empowerment for change in other lives? May I try a suggestion on you? What if we said something like, Mr. Smith, I noticed from your intake form that you smoke. 
I'm sure lots of doctors have told you you need to stop. Would you mind if I just shared a couple things with you? Nicotine is the most addictive substance known to mankind, and it's the main ingredient in tobacco. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, all the TV heroes smoked, and many people started in high school at the suggestion of a friend. Then they find that they can't, and in some cases, they don't even want to stop smoking. This is a free country, and you're an adult. I'm not here to nag or condemn, but I want you to know there are aids to help you stop smoking, but most of all, the power of God. If you decide you'd like to stop smoking and exercise your freedom of choice, we're here to help. Not perfect words, but perhaps a start. There's many different ways we could say it. But what if we conscientiously thought about not how we could give advice to patients, but how we could thoughtfully struggle to form our words in light of the grace of God and the love of God? While I was at Walla Walla College, I spent a weekend out at Rosario. That's their marine biology station. And it was Sabbath, and I decided I wanted to go out to the little island that they have there. It's uh, called Northwest Island. I was able to secure a boat and uh, got into the boat. Now, you have to realize this is not a sandy Tahitian island. This is more like a little mountain in the sea with 20-foot rocky walls. I got in the boat and I rowed myself out, scaled up the wall, enjoying the transient views and the aloneness for a few minutes. And and while I was there, I, I discovered something. There were these really neat little cactuses. Marine cactus, I was to find out later, one to two inches high. And I thought to myself, what a great little... Uh, plant for my dorm room. So I knelt down and lovingly started digging it out with my hands and was able to scoop it up and I gently placed it in my pocket. Crawled back down, started rowing back to the shore. As I'm rowing back, one of the professors there from Walla Walla was walking along the beach and uh, as I came up, he uh, he greeted me and said, Mark, how was it out there? I said, oh, it was very fine. You know, I said, I, I found this really cool plant out there, and I, I showed it to them. He looked at it uh, for a few minutes, paused, thoughtfully, carefully examining it, and then he said to me, um, yes, that's, and he gave the scientific name, they're going extinct. <laughs> Seems everyone would like to have one. That's all he said. The impact of those few words are with me 25 years later. (laughs) Those words could not have been kinder, but neither could have they been more true. Those words, like the tune of an unforgettable song, continue to echo in the corridors of my mind and have wrapped themselves around my heart. It is some 30 years later, later, in a letter, in the words of Paul, that we find the most succinct summary of our Lord's interaction on that day. In his memorable words to the Ephesians, Paul perfectly sums up this incident, speaking the truth in love. 
For if we speak the truth but not in love, we have nothing more than a caustic honesty and have not met the deeper definition of truth. And if we love while trying to avoid the truth, our so-called love is actually a sickly sentimentalism. Ultimately, then, we never speak the truth unless we speak the truth in love. And we never genuinely love unless our love is according to the truth. In this story, though, we see how this speaking the truth in love takes place. Here we have the perfect balance of justice with mercy, of law with grace, of grace with truth, and truth with love. Not only is the crowd hushed, but the universe is. While not one iota of his moral precepts has given way, he's had mercy on who he would have mercy. And that mercy was for a woman, was for her accusers, was for the crowd, and beyond their circle, it's for us. Like the quiet that follows the crescendo of a great symphony, the listening throng is awed and silenced, and so are we. Genesis reveals a time when there was one universal language spoken. What if Christian practitioners, Adventist doctors, dentists, and health professionals spoke the language of truth and love, God's universal speech, as our mother tongue? I'd like to conclude where we began, leaving the ring of scriptures in your ear, the testimony of Jesus. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in the very act of adultery. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up, and he said, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And he stooped down again, and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman was standing in the midst. Jesus then lifted himself up and said unto her, Woman, Where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? No man, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and leave your life of sin. The only words I can add to that story is amen, amen. 
This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.